Hello and welcome back once again to The Gold Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel O'Brien, Assistant Editor at Gold, and I am delighted to be joined by Gold's Editorial Executive, Jade Williams. How are you doing today, Jade? Very good, thank you. I've actually got a bit of a spring in my step at the moment because I just popped to M&S and they gave me some free daffodils at the counter. And honestly, I'm surprised at how happy that's made me, something so simple, but it's very much cheered up my desk. I think it really is about the small things and it's cheered up both of our desks. I think maybe we should make this a plan and do it more regularly and Ooh, always have flowers. Definitely. I mean, as long as they only last for a short while because I am a monster at keeping flowers alive if they're in a pot. Yes, we probably are going to come into some quite sad looking daffodils next week, but hopefully they last until the end of today. Fingers crossed. But enough about us. What's coming up in today's episode? Well, today I am happy to be presenting a very interesting conversation that I had with Jujana Devetchery, Vice President and Head of Global Oncology Medical at Sanofi, in which we had a great discussion about gender diversity in the pharmaceutical industry, getting personalised medicine to patients the key pillars of leadership, and so much more. That sounds great. Let's get into it. So as you mentioned, our guest today is Dr. Jujana Devachari, and she is the Vice President and Head of Global Oncology Medical Function at Sanofi, where she's been an employee for almost 18 years. Starting out as a product manager, then rising through the ranks of medical, making Vice President in 2019, she has a myriad of experience in medical affairs and the wider industry. After earning her medical degree in Hungary, she started out her career as a paediatric oncologist in Budapest. She then completed her MBA at the Corvinus University of Economics and received a certification in health economics and outcome research at the University of Washington. She is passionate about early diagnosis and treatment in oncology, and this is something that we go into in some detail during the interview. So let's have a listen. So, Jujana, welcome to the podcast. It is lovely to have you on after you contributed to one of our Gold Magazine features recently. But welcome to the show. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing very well. And thank you very much for the invitation. No, absolutely. So when I was looking into you a little bit, I discovered that you have a very diverse career history across the healthcare ecosystem. So you started out as a paediatrician, you were then a procurement expert, and you've worked in health insurance as well. After this sort of wealth of experience, what inspired you to move into the pharma space? That's very interesting when you say this way, uh, throughout the uh, healthcare industry or the value chain or, or something. You know, people say that uh, knowledge is power, and I think that very well represents my choices, what I made in, in my past. So I started as a pediatrician, and when I had my, my uh, first two kids, uh, in Hungary we are lucky to have long maternity leave, and I wanted to enjoy being a mother. But I could not progress in my career during that time. So I was thinking how I can keep up uh, my competitive place in the workforce. So I was thinking to do another degree, was thinking about psychology or or a business degree. So I decided to do an MBA because I realized that healthcare is not just treating patients, especially in those countries where I'm coming from, but it's same in every country all over the world, sometimes you cannot give the best treatment to patients. 
because it's not reimbursed, it's not available. So I wanted to learn more about it because uh, uh, not just being a, a pediatric oncologist, but being a mother, uh, you know, it, it, I had an increasing urge to understand how we can give better care to patients. So while I was at maternity leave, I completed my MBA. And uh, with that, I had a very different mindset. And I started looking things very differently. And when I went back to the clinic, I proposed changes, which were not really welcomed that time by the management. So I was wondering whether this is the right place for me, whether this is where I can contribute the most, where I can uh, help patients, help people, and also to to enjoy and follow my passion. So I tried different things. And I consider this time looking for or finding a match to my passion. And so I met a lot of great leaders in my MBA course. So they invited me, one of them, to do a procurement process when they wanted to refresh or upgrade all the X-ray machines in the country. And they said that the government has no expert to do that. We need a physician here who understand business, who understand how to do tenders, how to do this kind of stuff, whether I would be interested. I said, sure, uh, I'm interested. Let's see what we can do, because I strongly believe in early diagnosis. And this kind of imaging and uh, machines are, have essential roles. And we also know that the old X-ray machine has hazards. So I, I thought this is something interesting. This is a fixed time. So I can explore something different, negotiate with companies, assess uh, proposals. So that was a very interesting time and I learned a lot. And uh, But that was just something fixed. And it was a, a very interesting time in Hungary, because the new government was uh, thinking whether private insurance companies can enter the health insurance market. Previously, it's government-owned health insurance. So uh, I was thinking, again, it goes to how you can give better care for patients. So I I joined uh, uh, this company because they were expecting me to develop some health insurance products. And again, I could learn about uh, risk assessment, underwriting, uh, claim handling. I haven't heard that when I was a pediatrician before. And also how you can turn or how you can assess health status from a business point of view. Because when you, you make an insurance contract, people need to assess a person's health situation to be able to compensate for the change. So uh, I did a lot of things. I learned a lot. I even uh, built the claim handling uh, department because that was a growing thing. And then they started to figure out that their claims are coming in. Oh, my God, what we should do here. But at some point, again, it's politics. Uh, The government changed and, uh, and they just decided there is no, it's not going to work. So then I was again, so then what? I 
for a long time, I did not want to go to pharma because that time people started as sales reps and I did not believe I could do that. Now I know I could or could have, but I did not think, especially I was working in um, in a university hospital, a teaching hospital. It felt weird to do the, the sales rep job, but later on, I realized I could do differently. You'd, I don't ne- necessarily need to be a sales rep. So I and I have this passion for teaching and uh, spreading the learning and spreading the knowledge. So the first time when I joined pharma, I joined as a training manager, and I wanted to make sure that everybody who interacts with healthcare professional has the highest level of knowledge medical knowledge, but uh, again, another learning process to learn about soft skills and learn how to teach soft skills, negotiations, self-awareness, and everything else. And it was a fantastic time. And uh, now we arrived how I got to Sanofi, uh, where I am right now, uh, because in 2005, there was a product that was targeting abdominal fat and that it failed, so I can talk about it right now. And we all know that abdominal fat uh, is, uh, if you have a big uh, uh, belly, it's still considered an aesthetic problem, even, I don't know, 20 years later or 15 or years later. But it's a health problem. It's not the same if you have uh, uh, um, additional fat in different parts of your body. If it's in your abdomen, that's a cardiovascular or cardiometabolic risk, what you have. So, and there was a marketing product manager role at Sanofi. And I said, oh my gosh, that's the best marketing to do because you you can educate people on a nation level because this has education at its best. So, and this is how I got to pharma. This is how I got to marketing and later medical marketing and, uh, and, and medical where is my ultimate passion. So you found the match for your passion in the end. Yes, I think so. You know, as we all change, um, and I think passion and enthusiasm and interest, there are very different things. The passion is an underlying emotional state. I can be very enthusiastic, many, many things, but it all links back to my passion to help people. And uh, I think that's where... I went to the medical school. Hmm. Yeah, it's all incredibly interlinked. I think it just shows how many doctors you have in pharma and how many doctors that come into pharma come in for exactly the same reason. They felt that they could help a certain amount of people as a physician, but so many more working within the industry. And I think it's such a, a valid reason for joining. You spoke there a lot about your roles within all these different stakeholders that the industry works with. How do you think this experience has helped you in your career? Because I imagine not everyone has that experience when they come into the industry. I think my my biggest strength, if I can say that, is to work with different stakeholders, to understand their needs, to the active listening. We we want to teach all the time. You need to need to listen to your partner because your negotiation will fail. I think the 
the scientific curiosity to to make the drive to understand your partners this is this is very basic to to be in pharma and uh, for a very very long time many companies operated in a push manner to to work with stakeholders hcps payers everyone else but if you cannot find that common ground where you can agree on something you are going to fail so i think these sometimes out of box thinking sometimes thinking differently and uh, also forcing myself and my my team members to come up with different solutions my you know, what i hate the most when people say this is how we used to do uh, that's the point and yeah i i tend to leave the room because i don't <laughs> care because we need to look ahead we need to plan for the future so i think it's just understanding other people and being curious how we can find a mutual interest that's it's maybe simple but i think it's it's really hard to to do Exactly. And it helps having had all those different perspectives previously. So you can see it from those different angles, I'm sure. Exactly. Now, your role at Sanofi is vice president and head of global oncology medical. Medical affairs, oncology, these are your bread and butter. Um, But there are huge challenges in this space, um, particularly creating access to innovative cancer treatments. So how does you and your team, how do you work to overcome some of these challenges? Yeah, I fully agree with you. I think the biggest challenge is access in oncology because what we've seen in the last couple of years, there is an incredible acceleration of science. The precision medicine, the new uh, mechanism of actions, uh, multiple combination. Uh, and thankfully, or, or very fortunately, that this extended patient's life. But it comes with a cost. Uh, in this, In many diseases, combination treatment is the standard of care. There are many diseases that we are already talking about triple or quadruple combination. And it puts everybody in an almost impossible situation, especially on the payer side, how they can afford paying for two or three innovative treatments in, in one combination. So I think what the medical role here is to clearly define the right patient who can benefit from the treatment. I do not believe in basket, in overall uh, therapies. And I I need to mention here, I'm, I also have a health economics and outcome research certification. So I can, I have this mindset as well, that to make sure that we create the right outcomes that can be measured and then it helps in the negotiations with the prayers. If you think about a, a clinical study, what the development teams are, are designing with all inclusion exclusion criteria and that goes to registration, those patient description criteria very loosely describe the patients in real life. So it's a very clean cohort, how it should be. But the medical role is to figure out 
what to do and what to expect in those patient populations who are older, who are more frail, who uh, have more comorbidities, and create evidences to, to help payers understand which patient populations would benefit, how they would react to the treatment. There is a long way to go uh, because these studies are still long. I don't think that many pharma companies are ready to use or they, they already use a lot of digital tools, technologies, real-world data to accelerate this knowledge. And I think that's the biggest challenge right now, but also this is the biggest opportunity for us. Because uh, I've heard recently at a conference that 80% of overall data is coming from healthcare. And we only analyze 13% of that. So imagine that there is a vast amount of data out there which we are not using because we are still thinking about traditional clinical studies. But if you think about why do we do clinical studies where the comparator arm is standard of care? It, 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 it already exists. So there are many, many things that we can do differently. But the critical part here and what I always tell my team and I, everybody when, when we talk about medical, that we represent two very important uh, stakeholder groups. One group is all treating physicians. And I don't like saying HCPs because HCPs is a broad group, but I want to help physicians who stand next to the patient and need to make treatment decisions. That's very important. The second uh, group is patients because we need to bring the patient perspective. For example, if I'm invited to a new drug uh, development discussion, I sit at the table and representing these two groups. And when I hear that the adverse event profile is manageable, what does it mean? If a patient will have a grade three diarrhea for months, it's not manageable. And I need to be the one or the medical function needs to be the one to raise the hand and I say, no, patients are not going to take that drug. And I think these are the important thing, representing this, learning about stakeholder, these stakeholders, representing them internally, helping them uh, with endpoints and outcome measures that can help. And that will narrow down the population that will help also with, with reimbursement of the drug. But it needs a little bit of different mindset and not to push for all comers, but make sure that we, we get closer and closer to individual patients, understanding individual patients and the tailoring treatment to patients. This is a huge role. And I think not just my lifetime, but the generation after me will still work on that. But I think we, with the, all the digital transition uh, transformation that fortunately, unfortunately, COVID triggered, I think we have we are on an accelerated path. It's really interesting to hear you talk about that, and I think you're right. The digital transformation element does hold a lot of potential. Um, 
I hear a lot of medical teams talking about how they're digitally upskilling, whether that's from thinking about using chat GPT and things like that, or even, yeah, wearables, health technology, gathering real world data from patients. Um, yeah, it's an exciting future and it would be great to get there sooner rather than later, I think. Fully agree. You touched on something there, precision medicine, um, which is, I mean, I say it's a hot topic at the moment. Obviously, we had Barack Obama's initiative back in 2015, so it's not exactly a new concept, but more therapies are being approved year on year. What role do you think medical affairs can play in advancing this? Obviously, you've touched on there how they can be the um, warriors for patients. um, But yeah, is there anything specific you would raise? Yes, definitely. You can be precise or or using precision medicine if you know certain information about patients. So what we need to work a lot is diagnostics, biomarkers, biomarker use, uh, uh, genetic diagnostic, genomic diagnostics, all the omics uh, diagnostics, because it is not, there is a scientific part how this targeted treatment works. And if you don't measure, you will not know that. So we need to make sure that these tests uh, are known, people are aware of that. And and most importantly, people have access to that. So in many cases, people underestimate medical roles in the market access activities, but we play a very key role and we are just hip to hip or, or back to hell or hand in hand with the market access team to make sure that if there is a need, if there is a solution, people will understand yeah, what, the, what value that solution would bring. So when we are working on, uh, on precision medicine, we need to make sure that we create awareness about the, a certain testings. It, it's a, almost a process flow how it needs to happen because it's not just that you, you put the... Take the blood, measure it, that's it. You need to make sure that there are uh, test kits, there are tests. And most importantly, in oncology, when you do this testing, you need tissue. And tissue availability is limited. So when you ha- you do a, t- uh, a cancer biopsy, you cannot do 100 tests for, for a while. So you need to make sure that you do the right testing in the right time, whether you do it on a primary tumor or whether you are using it in, in a metastatic site, it's completely different. So it's a long answer to, to, to respond. We have a lot to work on establishing diagnostic processes and also to work together with healthcare pro, uh, professionals to, to make it happen and to make sure this is not a burden on patients and not a burden on on clinicians. And equally important, it's not a burden on the payers and and the healthcare budget. It sort of sounds like pharma needs to sort out the nitty gritty to make it as seamless and simple as possible for the other stakeholders. Would you agree with that? That would be an ideal situation. I I don't think we are there. It's a continuous learning and, and an iterative process because there are annual budgets and there are uh, new diseases, new markers uh, introduced. It's good for everyone, but I think if we need 
if we do not plan ahead, if we do not look the disease and the treatment landscape and in its complexity, we are doing a bad job. We, I cannot just say that, yo, we have a target. I only work on this target and I will push through to make sure that's, that test will be available worldwide. It's not going to work. So I need to see that if my marker uh, can correlate with any other markers. And of course, we are all thriving for liquid biomarkers. So many, many things that goes to awareness, clinical implication, but also circle back to research to make sure that we can make it better every single time. Efforts needed from every function by the sounds of it. But again, hugely exciting, uh, the potential there. So behind every winning therapy, um, we hope, is a really strong, high-functioning pharma company. Um, And something that we spoke about uh, for the article was the importance of gender diversity in pharma specifically. So I know Sanofi's made a number of commitments, targets um, for what it wants to achieve with female representation. But I guess my question to you is... What have you done? What, what, how have you driven forward this effort? And what do you think is most effective in improving gender equality in the workplace? So I don't believe that we can talk about gender equity because it's really an equity without talking about anything else, race, uh, education, um, expertise, everything else. So we we all have this. So we are. I'm not just a woman. I I I'm, I'm coming from Central or sometimes say Eastern Europe, uh, and and I have everything everything in in me. So I don't like thinking about just gender equity. And especially living and working in the United States, if you don't talk about race, you are doing it very very wrong. So I think. Yes, and if we made a commitment to 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 do significant efforts to to change it, but if I look at my team and uh, and how how I work, we cannot solve this immediately and from top down. We need to make sure that we help uh, young talent, young scientists from all over the world from very diverse backgrounds to have equal opportunities, which means I do a lot of mentorings. I lead a lot of fellowship programs for our PharmD fellows. And we have a very diverse background there. We work with, uh, uh, for example, with the French government to bring young uh, scientists to, um, to the United States. I believe that we need to care for the next generation um, to be able to step up because you need to bring people to to different, especially to leadership roles when they are ready. You don't want to bring someone when they are not ready. But So that's one thing what I, I do very intentionally to spot and support talents uh, worldwide to give them opportunity to show what they, what they can do. The second thing I do also together with my team is we I encourage everybody to hire for talent talent and not for expertise necessarily because talent and knowledge can bring people for very very far and sometimes expertise what you see that somebody spent 
10 years in a certain role does not mean anything. So we are trying to do all the interview process to make sure we assess knowledge and talent and passion and drive uh, uh, compared to expertise. And the third one, uh, which is more in, uh, immediate, I help everybody who is ready to take the next step in the career and being a, a female, um, not get, having opportunity or being in another uh, race with another background to make sure they get the leadership opportunity, they get visibility, they they just get to the role that they are or, they are already capable of doing it. So like three levels of activity, but we need to be very intentional doing that because we all have our own history or on our own biases. So if we do not think about doing it every single day, it's it's not going to happen. A hundred percent. It's got to be a conscious act. And you're right. Diversity in all its facets is incredibly important to be thinking about with that kind of regularity. I think you strike me as someone that has a very clear idea of who they are as a leader, who they are as a person and what they want to get out of their teams and what you want to give to your teams. So if there's someone listening that's perhaps just recently ascended the ranks, they're going to be getting into that first big position of leadership. What would be your advice for them uh, for how to be a strong and effective leader in pharma? That's interesting. I I never wanted to be a strong leader. I always wanted to be a, a leader whom people trust because of knowledge, because of empathy, because they know that I will always have their back. So I think the biggest, the most important thing for, for a leader to hire the right people, the right talents, and, uh, and put them together to achieve their maximum potential. Leadership is not about me. It's, it's all the other people I, I care about. And I like care about and not leading them because, uh, especially in my role, but in many, many, many leadership roles, we work with very smart, very knowledgeable, very talented people. So we just, we just need to nurture them. We need to help them to expand their perspective. So I think that's important to make sure that you hire the right people, you hire the right people for the right role. And the other thing is when you are a leader, sometimes we we think we know everything or we should know everything. And that's not true. I am the first one who admit that I don't know, but I, I I can find out. I have my team and they will they will respond. So I think it's like with the traditional doctor is is God. A leader is not the uh, the owner of ultimate truth or direction. The other thing that we, especially female leaders, tend to think that if we are not advancing fast, we are losing opportunities to get get where we want to be, and uh, it's not true. Uh, and people say this is this is a marathon. It, it's not a sprint. Yeah, when I had my kids, I was not afraid to stay at home for four years, uh, and just be a mother. 
because being a mother is equally important to me than being being a professional leader. So my advice is just do not miss your life because you become a leader Uh, and make sure you are happy. If you are not happy, it's not worth doing it. We always tell ourselves that, oh, it's super hard, but once I get this role or that role or I, I can get, no, no. Don't don't do this to yourself. It just makes sure whenever whatever you do, uh, you know why you are doing it, and if if you know the why's, you will be able to uh, to enjoy what what you do. But I see so many people doing stuff because they expect they think that this is what expected from them. Uh, I always tell people if you don't enjoy what you do, don't do it. I think it's very sage advice and it ties in with what you were saying earlier about people going at their own pace and not pushing ourselves or people around us into positions when they're simply not ready for it. And yeah, exactly. Some people, it might not be the right fit, but that's okay. And I think that's a very important thing to remember. Now, we haven't actually touched on this, but you've been at Sanofi for a long time. You've been there for 17 years, which is a pretty long tenure, especially for me. I'm a millennial of the millennial generation. <laughs> um, so it seems like a long time to me. But I'd be interested to know, what do you see as the benefits of staying with the same organization for a long time? And I guess specifically, what motivated you to stay at Sanofi? Yes, I think it depends on the size of the organization. Sanofi and the similar size companies uh, give a lot of opportunities for people to change roles and move between functions, move between geographies. So I think uh, recently I just taught someone, my current role is, is the longest I've been in, and this is about four years. I changed my role in every two or three years, which means an either or I advanced in my career or I learned something different. I did a couple of cross-functional moves. I moved between oncology and rare diseases. I moved between medical and commercial role. I moved from Europe to the United States to global role. So when you have this opportunity and when you consider all these moves, 17 years, it's not a, uh, it's not a long time. Of course, it's a, it's a long, long time. You can almost graduate from high school. But uh, it, if you do something different, you learn something different, you, you give something different, it is short. And every single time when, when um, I take a position, or I, I apply for the position internally, I always think about, okay, so what's the next one after that position? Because it's it's not worth to take to be opportunistic in your career. And that's what I tell people when when I, I'm mentoring. When when you apply for the role, you think about what your next will be after after that role. And uh, like a game yeah. of chess. Yeah. I think it's 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 a very good it, it, it big companies give a lot of opportunities and it's almost the same when you move between companies and you just have the uh, much stronger safety net. 
I suppose it could be easier if you're staying within the same organization to map out that progression. You can see how it all works. You're already within it. So those opportunities are more visible to you. Whereas if you're jumping around a fair amount of the time, you don't really know what you're getting into sometimes, which can be exciting. But I guess there are also perks to, you know, sticking with an organization. Like exactly. You said. You know, it depends on uh, on your comfort level and, uh, you know, companies are changing too. Big companies are changing too. You know, we always said that only change is constant, but you need to be very cautious where you are and where you want to be, whether it is within one company or, or in a different company and just consider your comfort level with, with unknown and uh, the rest is going to work out. Make a judgment from there. <laughs> so for my final question Gijana I always like to end on a bit of a fun note um, so my question for you today is do you have any hidden talents or hobbies that not many people may already know about I I have two uh, I'm an overachiever uh, that's clear <laughs> right so I dance Argentine tango for uh, six or seven years now and uh, and it's, I started doing it because it's beautiful. I don't need to talk about that. But I learned a lot about listening other people, even with your body and not, your, not just your brain. So that's, I would recommend everybody to do that, especially for women, when how to give away control while keeping it. And the second thing is I am uh, very interested in wine. I started studying for Master of Wine, and uh, and I'm not sure I'm going to go that far, but currently I really enjoy the process. So with these two, everybody warns me not to go to Argentina, because if I go there, I would never come back uh, because of tango <laughs> and wine. That is brilliant. A secret Argentinian tangoing wine lover. Shujana, thank you so much for joining us. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Wow, getting a master's degree in wine certainly seems like an ideal pathway to me. Isabel, was there anything in particular that stood out to you from your conversation with Shujana? I found my conversation with her incredibly inspiring and interesting. One thing that I found particularly insightful was around fast tracking and leadership and identifying the right people for those roles. And also that there's no shame in not being right for one of those roles. We're all on our own journey. And I think she really encapsulated that point very effectively. Mm, I'd agree. Definitely. It's nice enough to have someone helping you forward in your career. But if you're not ready, it's not the best to have someone pushing you into a space you're not prepared for. 100%. But that does bring us sadly to the end of this episode. Thank you again to Shijana for coming onto the podcast and thank you for listening. Do be sure to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode, which will be the last of this half of the season. And we will be delving into our upcoming issue of Gold magazine, discussing some of the content and interviews that you can expect to see in that next issue out on the 13th of April. It's not one to be missed. So until then, it's goodbye from us. See you next time.